Hello and welcome to the Archimedes podcast from the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. Here we talk about all things evidence-based and child healthy. Well, actually that's not quite true. We talk about very selected little bits of it, usually two case studies and one sort of section on how to understand the methods or the implementation of evidence-based practice. But it's a bit of a long-winded way of introducing a section, so to go sort of all overblown and say it's everything just sounds better, doesn't it, somehow? Anyway, now you know what the podcast is actually about, hopefully you'll carry on listening. And we tend to open with something that is about methods or interpretation or implementation, because there's no point in doing the academic-y stuff of critical appraisal and searching and fine-tuning our ways of thinking about bias if we can't actually put it into practice in the first place. And that's what evidence-based medicine's there for. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It really is about understanding what we're doing to make things better for patients. And this time, we've got to cracking cases that have triggered lots of deep thinking, but also stuff that will hopefully make a difference to people in the real world. Having teased you with that though, instead let's talk about methods. We'll often start conversations with our grown-up medical colleagues stating, children are not just little adults! But in the realms of infectious diseases, we might have a harder time convincing folk that the streptococci that infect the throat of toddlers are actually half the size of those giving endocarditis, the post-cardiac stent patient. Because, well, though the bug size doesn't differ, the host responds some times does. And the pharmacokinetics or pharmacodynamics of the treatments that we might use, well, they might do as well, but not always. And this leads us to explore, yet again in a children's evidence-based podcast, where can we extrapolate from adult data, and where can't we? Firstly, we have to acknowledge that sometimes things are wildly different. Group B strep sepsis in neonates is a neonatal issue. Sometimes things are, are quite alike, but vary a bit such as how quickly a small child can get rid of vancomycin from their system, or how difficult it seems to be to get rid of a urinary infection compared to in grown-up women. And sometimes they appear damn near identical, like impetigo or empiric therapy for febrile neutropenia or neutropenic sepsis, as the grown-ups call it. Now, this is the framework that, is it wildly different, is it similar-ish, or is it actually identical, that we can consider when we are thinking about extending our extensions into adult evidence. We need to think clearly, and we need to use ancillary evidence, maybe from early phase studies or observations of illness course that take in all sorts of ages, and then use that sort of information to work out, are kids really just little big people? Or are big people a different breed altogether? Or is it something similar-ish but with subtle variations? Are they completely unlike, almost identical or something in between? Now that framework has actually been put into regulatory practice. The European Medicines Agency in 2017 came up with a very well thought out and argued piece about how we could extrapolate the regulation of medicines on the basis of those sorts of ideas, using formal evidence to pull those things into understanding, really. 
it is worth a look and, and you can go on the website and you can link out to that document. But what you've got to really think in the practical day to day is what bits of evidence can I use to support that completely different and similar with variation or near as damn it the same. Now, bearing that in mind, our first little evidence case is under the question, what is the significance of an accelerated BCG reaction in children? This is from Drs Villanova, Pitet and Nurs and Professor Curtis at the Department of Paediatrics in the University of Melbourne down in Australia. The scenario is asked to review a seven-month infant who's born in Australia, given a BCG injection the previous day in preparation for travel to India, which is where her parents were originally from, and her parents noticed a six millimetre swelling already at the injection site less than a day. You know that an accelerated response to BCG might be associated with an underlying TB infection, but this kid is completely well and a normal examination. Should you really investigate this further, or is that just one of those mythological things? So the group went away, and they looked to see, is an accelerated local reaction in BCG vaccination in a child, that's the thing of interest and the population, indicative of an underlying TB? And that's the outcome where underlying TB could be a latent TB infection or active TB disease. For the separation of those two things is is subtle and really worth going back to your basics and, and trying to understand how those two things differ because they have different sort of risks, stuff they need treating, but different ways of managing them. What they did was they went out and they did a large search across different databases and came back with a potentially 139 separate things. They went through those in detail and came down to 14 separate publications that really addressed that issue around understanding the sensitivity and specificity. That is, how good it is at diagnosing a, a TB problem and how good is it at diagnosing it in normality or where can it go wrong in the normal patient. Of those, seven of them were good enough to help us with both of those elements and seven of them just about the element to do with sensitivity rather than including normal or non-infected patients in order to do the specificity. Of those seven that only had TB patients, they ranged from 50 to 150 kids in size. Of those that had a mix, somewhere between 48 and 915 in size. And then there were another couple of studies that showed just what happened if you gave it to kids that were not infected. Not so much a specificity finding thing as just what, what happens in normal kids as well. So, when they had a look at all of these papers, they found that indeed, because it's been seen in adults, that an accelerated BCG reaction did indeed look like it was related to some sort of TB problem. In adults, it had a really quite dodgy specificity. That is, uh, it would come up positive even when there was really nothing going on. Uh, and so for adults, it's more of a rule out um, than a rule in test. Now, the subtle thing about children, of course, is that they are quite different. Some of them will be BCG naive, unlike most of the things that adults were in, and others won't be. And when you looked at this in detail, they found that for those patients that hadn't had a BCG injection, the reaction, the hyper-accelerated reaction of, of it coming up really, really quickly was less common and didn't mean as much when it did come up. The things that did 
cause it to come up when it wasn't a proper TB infection, were potentially having had a BCG vaccination, but also non-mycobacterial uh, infections as well, non-TB mycobacterial infections. So you've got those sort of underlying there as well. However, they did find, pulling all of this stuff together, that in a meta-analysis, that the sensitivity was around about 87-88% and specificity around about 90%. What does that mean when you're thinking about it in terms of clinical outputs? Well, it means that if there is an accelerated BCG reaction in symptomatic children, then you really should be looking in detail for latent TB infection or active TB disease. Now, the presence of it in asymptomatic or in low TB prevalence areas is probably the same in the sense that you should investigate because it's concerning, particularly if there are risk factors such as travel to an endemic area or being in a population with a higher rate of TB. But be aware that an accelerated reaction might reflect previous mycobacterial exposure, including the non-TB ones, or BCG and if you're an infant and you are closer in time to having your BCG vaccination maybe it's a little bit more likely that you will get a false reaction there. Our other case also addresses a microbiological issue but one of huge practical importance which is really important for kids, families and the junior doctors on the wards. The question is, are trough tobramycin concentrations taken from a central venous line accurate enough to safely use? This is generated by Hannah Tumulty, Jeff Shenton and Malcolm Brody at the Great North Children's Hospital up in Newcastle in the UK. And it's an exceptionally brilliant example of a proper EBM in practice. This could make a massive difference thing. It's a 15-year-old girl with CF who's admitted to the ward and needing tobramycin. She recently had a porter cath in place for helping giving things, but on the respiratory wards, the tobramycin concentrations need to be taken with a peripheral sample, unlike many of the other blood tests, and actually unlike the tobramycin concentrations measured in the oncology unit which then set this team away. Is there actually a difference between the concentrations in a central line and taken peripherally? And if so, is that difference important enough that it would influence clinical decisions? They went away and they looked in a number of different sources and pulled out six different things that were possibly going to be includable and the full text was available. They did find in that that there were a number of ones that had compared different groups where they'd looked at the central line and the peripheral samples. The sizes of the samples were not enormous, 23 to 110 patients. And as you can probably imagine from this population, it's largely CF patients, but there are others in there as well. Other reasons for having antibiotics and also having a central line in place. Because of the sort of age of the studies and the way that these were done, it's largely on the BD or TDS regimes rather than the once-daily regimes that are becoming increasingly common, having shown possibly slightly better efficacy or certainly the same and reduced side effects. So as a sideline, I'd encourage you all to move to that when there aren't concerns over renal function. And the central lines that were being used were also a mixture, some ports, some Hickmans, some uh, PIC lines. 
They didn't spot an enormous difference between the different lines that were being used. Again, in smallish numbers, maybe there is a difference and just not being able to be seen because of the nature of the small numbers involved. What they found was that whilst there was some variation between the two, the peripheral and the central samples, they were rarely any different in terms of decision making that would have changed people in doing a different drug dosing or a different drug gap between them. What seemed to be important was having a very clear operating procedure where a decent amount of flush was taken and the discard was measured in a particular way so that you didn't get diluted samples and you didn't get um, the wrong sort of thing because it was stuck on the plastic on the way out. These do really support the idea that you can do it like that The only sort of rider has to be that these were on BD or TDS sampling where the numbers might be a little bit different and the sampling at 23 hours out, which is where you'd do it on a once daily one, might be a bit different. But if anything, maybe the logic leads us in the other direction to say that it is more likely to be more greatly different um, if it was to be performed closer to the time of sampling rather than further away. So, those are the brief summaries of our microbiological Archies for this month. If you too want to get in on the action, and it doesn't have to be microbiology, it doesn't have to be about drugs, it can be about anything. Just listen to a few of the previous ones over the course of this year, and you will see the massive range that Archimedes addresses. Then please do email us, follow the instructions to authors on the website there, Make sure you use the actual template rather than one that you want to use instead. Please, makes life so much easier for you and uh, for the whole editorial team. And send us it in. We will give you a guidance as to whether we think it's a question that might be answered, is in the process of being answered, or has recently been turned down, and the reasons why, so that you get some sort of steer about how much effort it's worth putting into your thing. Um, But try, give us your ideas, and you too could be having your stuff discussed live on the internet. So until next month, thank you for listening and please do share your thoughts with us through any of the social media that you can find.